Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 89 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, our musical guest is J.C. Clements. We'll listen to her interview and three of her tunes recorded live in the Brown County Inn. Jim Eagleman has a few words about tree stumps. Lisa Hall shares some information about a documentary she is working on, and Dave Seastrom is in retreat. Susan Clearwater discusses anxiety. Jeff Tryon continues his dialogue about local septic issues. And we have the winner of the Liar's Bench Story Slam, Dave Denman. In our first segment, we'll hear part one and two of our interview with J.C. Clements. In between the two sections, we'll hear her tune, Don't Take Advantage. We'll close with Jim Eagleman's essay about tree stumps. my pleasure to introduce J.C. Clements, who is here tonight to discuss her music with the J.C. Clements Band, which she heads and is the main vocalist and writes most of the tunes for. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So, J.C., tell us about your musical background. I understand you have a very rich history in Chicago blues. I Well, I hope I do. I, my, say, experience with blues really started here in south-central Indiana when I met a guy named Jim Bennett, um, who is the nephew of the late, great Lonnie Mack. He said, here, take this cassette home. Uh, this is my uncle, Lonnie Mack. And I had never heard any blues before. I certainly had never heard of Lonnie Mack before. And I took it home, and I just felt like the universe blew up in front of me. It felt like everything made sense, and I loved it. And it was I was so thirsty and hungry for a genre that did all the things that blues does. And I went back for more, you know, and gave me a VHS tape of Albert Collins, Roy Buchanan, and Lonnie at playing at Carnegie Hall. Wow. And so at that time, I, I was probably, you know, heading towards 12, the ripe old age of 12. And I had started studying under um, a guitar teacher there. I took the VHS home and just the world of Albert Collins and Roy Buchanan then became a reality for me. And I decided I was going to go out and start looking for more blues artists 
And I really wanted to find someone. I, I really immediately identified with Lonnie Mac stylistically and, and lyrical content and everything. And he was just such a hero immediately to me. I knew that there had to have been a female version of that power and that command that you could hear in his recordings. And um, so I started listening and being aware of and, and buying little cassettes that had all of the compilations, all these different artists on it. So 16 years old, I was driving down 252, headed to, um, I think, Edinburgh, and I was listening to local radio, Lonel Conley, his radio hour, King Row, and Coco Taylor, Flame and Mamie came on. Okay. I still, like, as I'm talking about it, I still get emotional. It blew me away, and I pulled the car over, and I just sat and I listened to it, and it just totally grabbed me, and I just thought, I can do this. You know, I, I'm not going to be that good. I'm not going to be Coco Taylor, but I think that I can I can really study this, what she's doing. I think I can try this. Yeah, we're going to feature Pat Culley on the bass on this and Eric Gaylord on the drums. It's a Lonnie Brooks tune. I love Lonnie Brooks. He's uh, not with us anymore. He's a big influence on me, and I just love the guy.
mentored by Governor Davis, Gene Deere, Gordon Bonham, Steve Robbins, and Jan, his uh, wife. I just, they all looked out for me. Dan Bent, um, they all just kind of adopted me and they would literally drive me around, some of them, to the jams. Wow. And, and I just was relentless about going. And that was when I was studying classical music at, at Marion. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then my best friend from college, um, Jennifer Brodnick Wright, her last name is Wright now, um, she came to me and said, you know, my brother found this college in Chicago and it's right behind Buddy Guy's Legends. And I said to her, I am now going to transfer to whatever that college <laughs> is, <laughs> whatever the name of that school is. I need an application, and I'm going to go there. And she said, well, let's drive up and look at it. And she was so supportive and loving. And she rode up there with me. And we parked in the parking lot, and we it was really bright and sunshiny out. And we walked into the door. This was... Um, in August, this was right before I turned 21, we walked into the door of the club and there was one guy sitting at the bar. And I then started talking to this person and telling them, you know, how much experience I had. You know, I'm this great young artist and you better watch out because Lonnie Mack's been coaching me and, you know, he's told me a lot of stuff. And then as my eyes adjusted to the room, I realized I was talking to Buddy Guy, <laughs> and I had <laughs> – luckily, he laughed and thought I was crazy, and he said, well, I'll tell you what. You come back here tonight, and luckily, again, I had no idea, but it was jam night. You come back here tonight, and we'll get you up on stage, and we'll see We'll see how things go, you know. And, you know, so it goes from there. I luckily didn't suck that bad. I was <laughs> – was pretty good and that's the night that I met George Bays and um, Orlando Wright and Brother John Kotke and people that would become you know dear friends of mine and Brother John and um, George recorded my second album with me and Orlando Wright played our wedding and you know these are it's, it's insane it just doesn't make any sense that I had this experience it's abs it just it really feels ridiculous when I sit here and talk about it that, that this well, happened. To except me. that you were bitten by the bug and you I pursued your dream. I did. I was, I was going to become part of the Chicago blue scene, and I was going to be respected as an artist. I pulled that off. I so got. So <laughs> you, you were right on the cusp of becoming Miss Big Time. Yeah. And and I met this guy. That is still your husband That's and the still father my of your children. Your yes. three children. Yeah. And you were faced with this big decision. So we had decided that it was – at first we thought we could pull this off. I can still, you know, be a working blues person and, and have the baby, and he can still, you know, work and do his job in the music business. But quickly we realized that we really missed and needed the, the large family that we grew we both grew up around. And so we made the decision that we were going to go move close to family. There was a bigger dream for me, and that was to have a great family and with this, you know, wonderful person. So you hit the pause button. You I did. devoted yourself to your children. I did. They're older now. Yes. And you're back in the saddle. I am. I am. So where to from here? I don't know. You know, uh, I think the difference this time around is one Lonnie's passed so I do miss that ability to you know pick up a phone and 
I miss that because I would probably be asking him things right now. And I had set goals my first time, and I achieved those goals. And this time, I'm just going to see where it takes me. I'm just going to just hop on this journey and go. But I think there are benefits to maturity. We hope. (laughs) I know, right? Right. This time around, I am really enjoying it a lot more. And and I really appreciate, and I, I slow down long enough to really appreciate the people who are playing with me more than I did even then. I have the most amazing group of people that I'm playing with, and it, it's, it feels a lot like the first time around when I looked to my left and Brother John Cocky was there, and I looked to my right and George Bays was there, and I'm in the middle going, wow, this I'm the one that doesn't belong here. <laughs> like, this is crazy, you know. <laughs> I kind of feel that way. Now, you know, I see Eric Gaylord behind me on the drums, and he's so good, and Mike Lafferty, you know, and um, Jason, my husband, he's really good, too, and Pat Cully on the bass. It just, I just feel like I'm so lucky. So you, you're back in the saddle. Are you hoping or planning to do some touring, or is that in the cards for you? We um, have gone into a three-state radius now. It did happen pretty quickly. I thought that it would be a much slower progression back in because the last time it took me, you know, like it took me about four years, you know, five years to get rolling to where I became A.C. Reed's sideman and I became Shirley King's sideman and then I had my own band, you know, and like there was a progression that I followed, you know, and I ended up hosting the jam of Buddy Guys for a while. Like that all that kind of like this time it's happened a lot faster which I'm so grateful for, but yeah, we're we're in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana right now. So. so if we're wanting to follow your career and know where you're playing, do you have a Facebook page, a website? I a... sure do. All that stuff. J.C. Clements. If you just J.C. J.C. Clements. That's your Facebook. Yeah. What's your website? JCClementsBand.com. Okay, excellent. Well, very best of fortune to you in your voyage of discovery. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. Recently, I dug out some tree stumps, a long and difficult task of picking away ground and then using my chainsaw to cut long, reaching roots. The job took much longer than I'd originally expected. I should know by now when I start these projects. I need a lot of time, a lot of water, and a place to sit and rest. I cut the stumps at ground level a year ago, but still found that an instruction I'd occasionally stumble over, so time to get rid of them. The stumps were sawn flat, but it's still attached to the ground, and I saw small saplings arising from them, so I knew the tree roots were still growing. You tend to appreciate a tree's foundation when you have to dig out a root. Long, tapering roots go back into the soil, overlapping other roots, becoming smaller and smaller, creating a mesh-like network that seems impossible to disturb And that's what took most of the time, tediously picking away at dirt that had become tightly packed in and around each root and rootlet. I was there for a while. I found an old screwdriver that did the job and used it like I was picking at a chunk of ice. As I worked, and to help my mind with this seemingly unending task, I tried to recall some of the terms in my dendrology classes years ago. During winter term, a professor brought in an actual stump of a small tree he had cut to show us the different parts, and then stated when it got warmer that we'd attend a lab at the university field station. Slowly, surprisingly, as I worked, a few terms came back. Root hairs. 
those tiny thread-like projections that were encased in the dirt I was digging away. Meristematic tissue that occurred at three places where a tree growth occurs, the root hair, the cambium just inside the sapwood, and at the bud tip, and tracheids, those tiny pipelines that conduct water up the tree and waste products downward. I had to chuckle. This job was becoming a mental challenge as much as it was a physical one. But now that it's with me, that's how it is. My mind tends to wander when engaged in performing tedious tasks. Fortunately, I was able to recall these botany terms and a few others. Since it wasn't that long ago, I used them in my teaching at the park. Use it or lose it. It was a saying I recall my teenage buddies said when teasing. But it's actually true. Had I not defined these terms in my programs with the public or at our many conservation field days over the years, I may not have ever had a use for them. Pointing out how trees grow, where their food is made, how trees absorb water, why leaves change color in the fall, and what we get from trees all became easier if I had tree props, woods, stumps, leaves, and examples in front of me. And from my tree stump removal project, a few days brought back some pleasant memories. Elementary school field trips to the park each October became a popular event. School children of all ages poured out of yellow buses. Lunches were in backpacks, and teachers with whistles tried to maintain some sense of order. As usual, I was asked to do a short nature talk at the outside amphitheater at the Nature Center for each group. While a blazing display of color all around us and a vista that stretched on for miles to the horizon, it was an ideal classroom for me to do my talks. Trees, that seemed to be the best topic. Waving a leaf on a stem, I called it a factory where something very important is made, food. Visualizing a factory where items like TV sets and cars are made, in the tree example, I said it was carbon dioxide and sunlight that were some of the items needed to make the tree's food. A few heads stopped moving. Some actually paid attention. And what do we get in exchange by giving the tree our exhaled gases? Oxygen. Hmm, that seemed pretty important. Teaching trees to kids may be only part of the mission of a natural resources educator. I try to tie in the importance of trees to the bigger picture of conservation. Conservation is defined as the wise use of our natural resources. If our children are to be stewards of the future, how they use them will determine what kind of healthy life they have on this planet. The tree stumps are finally out of the ground, I'm happy to say. For each 30 minutes of work, I estimate I used at least that much resting, drinking water, and planning my next maneuver. The pile of wood that used to be a stump in the ground was relegated to the compost pile. I tried to recall if the structure of the wood in the root ball was denser, or made of different cells, or simply was harder. My three doll chainsaw chains helped me with that answer. Did knowing a little bit about trees help me in this endeavor? The technical terms, the biology of trees? Probably not. It just made me more appreciate of them a little more. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings, WFHB Radio, the Brown County Hour. And to all my fellow tree lovers out there, thanks for listening. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 
106.3 at Ellettsville and online at wfhb.org. Segment two begins with Lisa Hall discussing her documentary, The Addict's Wake. Herbalist Susan Clearwater shares some information about anxiety. Jeff Tryon continues his dialogue about the septic wars in Brown County. And we'll close with J.C. Clements' tune, Distance. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Lisa Hall. And Lisa is here to tell us about a production company that she's working with to produce a video called The Addict's Wake, which is all about the opioid situation in rural Indiana, I believe. Yes. So let's tell us some of your background. Give us a little information about what you're doing and how you're hoping to get there. First of all, thank you for having me. My husband and I have been full-time members of Brown County Community for two years. And when uh, we became full-time residents, I very quickly wanted to plug in and um, started serving on Sundays in the jail. This was a result of really an incident that happened in Indianapolis in 2013 when I had a very dear friend and her daughter were murdered in their home. And after that, I just really knew that I wanted to get inside of jails and just understand what people go through and how they get there and what their paths are. And here in Brown County, the majority of women that I work with in incarceration are there because of drugs and their choice to use highly addictive drugs. And their stories have been um, compelling and profound. And so I knew that living in this county that is so spectacularly unique, I knew I wanted to make a difference in this area of meth and opioid use that is at pandemic levels. I resist this level of use as being part of the DNA of a rural county. Right, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. I do think we there are things that we can do to pull together more tightly as a community to fight against and reject this um, sickness and the addiction levels. And so I'm part of a three-person team that had decided to tell this story of what addiction looks like, substance abuse disorder looks like in small rural counties and the effects of it. Because by mere virtue of the numbers, it's more felt here. And so we're hoping that this story will allow dialogue to continue among the entire community. And so we're going to be featuring all the major entities that have a role in dealing with recovery and and substance abuse. So we're going to be humanizing this issue. And what that looks like and what that means is that we're going to be showing what the reality is of the decision to use highly addictive drugs, what that downward spiral looks like in the life of a few people. And so we have done some preliminary interviews in the jail. We've identified some people that just have uh, stories that need to be told. And we have a lot of generational use that we need to learn how to overcome as a community. We're going to humanize it. We're going to show the reality of it. So our message to them is this doesn't define you. You can be addicted and hopeful and not addicted and and just dying because we've lost too many great people of this community to overdose. Will you also be including the stories of people who have actually come out of this spiral? Oh, yes. Absolutely. We have we have people that have been in recovery that we'll be featuring for, you know, 18 plus years. Yeah. We have some that are just embarking on recovery and so we're going to 
you know, be featuring what that looks like and what their challenges are. And this is just the documentary is really one piece in Glory Girl production company's vision. Glory Girl. I Glory like it. Girl. Well, you have a, a fundraiser coming up. Making a documentary is expensive. You want to tell us a little bit about this event? It is a fundraiser, but we're also calling it a friendraiser. So we want people in the community and neighboring communities to come out and to learn about documentary. And, and all the entities will be there with tables of information. Dr. Laura will have back-to-school stuff. Centerstone will have a table of information, launch house, etc. But we'll have a chance for people to meet the director and... We have fantastic music lined up, so people can just bring their lawn chairs and enjoy three hours of great music. Um, We're going to be serving hot dogs and drinks, and everything is free of charge. If you want to give where you live to this project, you'll be free to do so, but you'll also be free just to come out and learn about it. And uh, I hope to have a couple mini donkeys there to love on and just some fun extras. Yeah. Oh, no, wait till you see them. They're so sweet. And uh, so we're just going to we're going to have a fun afternoon from 12 to 3 on August 10th. And this will be uh, at our barn on Helmsburg Road. And there'll be some signage. There'll be some parking signs so you'll know where to park. So our address is 1743 Helmsburg Road. And the entrance to our property, uh, which will be marked, is right directly across from Owl Creek. It will be rain or shine because we will move in the barn if Mother Nature is not nice to us. But... I'm trusting that she's going to be. Do you have some other means by which we can find out about this and stay in touch with you? Uh, The website is in production as we speak. I have an email that people are welcome to email me, lhall at glorygirlproduction, and that's singular, dot com. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. This, This is a long-going, tragic story in our community and other rural communities throughout Indiana that's touched everyone's family. And I would say that it's not even just Indiana. It's coast to coast. Of course it is. And what we're hoping to showcase are the things that this community is doing well in in terms of addressing this issue and, and really fighting it and linking arms. I really want this documentary to be a clarion call to say we must continue to fight against these these trends. And so I'm, we're hoping to showcase this county as a county that, uh, you know, are doing things well and, and that we'll be showing it nationally so other counties can also learn from us and other neighboring counties. Well, wishing you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me. Greetings. This is Susan Clearwater, your local holistic registered nurse and herbalist, bringing you For Your Health, highlighting herbs and the holistic approach. So many people struggle with anxiety these days. I'd like to offer suggestions that can relax the nerves to make daily life more calm and enjoyable. Anxiety is caused by imbalance within the nervous system. The primary chemicals responsible for brain and nervous system function are called neurotransmitters. And there are two types. The excitatory neurotransmitters provide stimulating energy that motivates us and provides get up and go, while the calming neurotransmitters relax the nerves and promote calm mood and restful sleep. People experience anxiety when the neurotransmitters get out of balance. Often, an excess of excitatory neurotransmitters like adrenaline, norepinephrine, dopamine, or glutamate is the cause. A deficiency of the calming neurotransmitters is also common, and these include serotonin and GABA. 
Interestingly, many plants also contain neurotransmitters and other chemicals that, when ingested, have a direct effect on relaxing nerves and muscles throughout the human body, which is why medicinal herbs can be so helpful for reducing anxiety. Skullcap, Scutellaria lateriflora, is a good example. This is my favorite anti-anxiety herb, being both healing and calming to the nervous system. Research shows that the leaves contain the calming neurotransmitters serotonin and GABA and melatonin, the hormone that promotes restful sleep. Skullcap is helpful for all types of anxiety conditions, including hyperactivity, muscle rigidity and spasms, headaches, insomnia, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, and adrenal burnout. An alcohol water extract, known as a tincture, is the most effective form of skullcap to take. Valerian is another popular anti-anxiety herb that contains serotonin and GABA. It relaxes nerves and muscles and is indicated for insomnia, muscle spasms, hyperactivity, and high blood pressure. Scientists have reported that valerian, combined with lemon balm and passion flower, are good alternatives to benzodiazepines like Valium in treating mild to moderate anxiety. Lemon balm makes a delicious tea to soothe the nerves and is traditionally used for insomnia, anxiety states, nervous headaches, and muscle tension and spasms. Passion flower is a very gentle, relaxing herb that contains GABA and helps in anxiety, mild sleep disturbances, muscle spasms, and gastrointestinal problems caused by overstimulated nerves. In France, it's traditionally been used with hawthorn berries for heart problems and palpitations related to tension. Chamomile tea is a favorite sleep aid that calms the nervous system, and it's especially indicated for irritability and persistent low-grade anxiety. Chamomile flowers reduce muscle spasms and are especially effective for emotional stress in the solar plexus and digestive problems caused by anxiety, like nervous stomach and ulcers in the stomach and intestinal tract. When taken as tea or tincture, lavender leaves and flowers contain sedating volatile oils that relax the nerves and stimulating bitters that strengthen and tone the nervous system. Lavender is helpful for emotional trauma, chronic anxiety, insomnia, nightmares, headaches, and mental exhaustion. And lavender oil feels wonderful when applied externally to ease achy headaches and muscle spasms. Catnip is another tasty tea that's soothing for the nerves, and this is specific for nervous tension and anxiety in infants and children, and can also be used by adults. Holy basil, or tulsi, is a popular herb in India that Americans are discovering. Tulsi's most amazing gift is its ability to recalibrate and normalize the nervous and endocrine systems. It reduces stress responses throughout the body, restores adrenal health, and improves mental clarity. Tulsi makes a delicious tea or tincture, and with regular use, people report less stress-induced anxiety and headaches and improve digestion, energy levels, mental health, and inner calm. So when dealing with anxiety, try some of these herbs and see if they help you. Take a good vitamin and mineral supplement to provide the nutrients your body needs to produce adequate amounts of neurotransmitters. And remember, our thoughts and emotions directly influence the nervous system. Engaging in daily relaxation, meditation, 
or body movements like yoga and tai chi are empowering and effective ways to manage stress and calm the nervous system. You can find more information on these herbs and their recommended dosages in my book, The Art of Herbal Healing, available at greenturtlebotanicals.com. This is Susan Clearwater, and until next time, here's to your health. The Septic Wars, Episode 7, A New Beginning. In the latest episode of the ongoing Septic Wars, the powers that be are headed back to the drawing board to once again try to answer the philosophical and also urgently practical question of how many people can poop in Brown County and where. Meanwhile, regular people begin to see what the impact of more stringent septic standards can be. Taking that second thing first, Brownie's Restaurant just north of Bean Blossom, recently closed, and the reason was that the county public health department was requiring another big upgrade in the business's sewage disposal system that the owner, Brownie, wasn't able or willing to pay. According to him, hasn't been too many years since he spent a bunch of money on a newfangled septic system that was supposed to solve all his establishment's waste problems to the satisfaction of the department. Now they were again requiring him to make another big investment to again upgrade the facilities. Now, Brownies was more than just another roadside cafe. It was an important thread in the tapestry of community up there in that end of the county, and and indeed for the whole county. It was the kind of place where the workmen and the farmers gathered for breakfast, and, and everyone came for lunch. They served regular, wholesome food for a pretty decent price. It was a restaurant for regular people, the normal people, the everyday people of Brown County. Everybody loved that place, but it had to go. All of a sudden, it wasn't meeting our waste disposal standards. You know, there's more or less always been a restaurant in that spot for most of my life. I remember when I was little, it was Robin's Drive-In. We'd go there on a Sunday afternoon after church, and the place would be packed out, wall to wall, out the door. So in a way, it is a symbol of a lifestyle that once was, but can no longer be. As the population density in the county increases, the overall problem of sewage disposal becomes more critical. Looks as if we've more or less decided that Bean Blossom will have its own sewage treatment plan and sewer system, something that has been dreamed of and planned for over and over again for 40 or 50 years, I guess. Of course, the problem is to create a district around areas that are densely populated enough to support a sewer system, and not too daunting geographically. Helmsburg has a sewer system, but not really enough customers to support it. But now, residents who will be lassoed into the system want to know just how bad is the problem. And the county is grappling with quantifying the problem. How many septic systems are failing and what exactly is the impact on local wells and waterways? Where does agricultural and livestock runoff fit into the whole picture? Last year sometime, I saw a hand-lettered sign by the side of the road up in Fruitdale. It said, Wake up, Brown County. Sewers equal subdivisions. Yes, as we begin to install this centrally located sewer system, which could be the backbone of an eventual county-wide system, maybe we should ponder whether there are any future implications we want to think about. Once the sewer is in place, will it attract the kind of instant suburbs we see popping up in Johnson County and even Morgan County to the north? Is that good or bad? How will it affect the lifestyle of all Brown Countyans? It has always seemed to me people move to Brown County for what it is, and then they immediately set into changing it to be more like where they are from. We used to call it 
the Carmelization of Brown County. People moved here from affluent urban Carmel, the wealthy exurb north of Indianapolis, fell in love with the scenery and so forth, and decided to build a little cabin here. But before long, they started wanting Brown County to be a lot more like Carmel. More paved roads, water line extensions, and yes, sewers. They expected fire and other emergency services on a par with what they had known in the city, and more commercial establishments tending to their upscale needs. That's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with it, I guess. But at some point, we've turned a little backwards paradise into just another urban sprawl. We should be careful not to destroy the parts of Brown County we love in our attempts to bring it into the 21st century. On the bright side, if they ever do get the sewer system built up there, Brownies will probably open its door once again. So, somewhere on the other side of that mountain, all you can eat Catfish Friday. taught me how to read what's right how to keep from loving the wrong man twice how to keep from making the same mistake again Taught me how to stand my ground How to keep from letting them pull me down How to keep from falling down again Oh, that's the lesson I learned from my sin I met my conquer and faced my fears I haven't felt that good in want to feel that way again Oh, that's the lesson I learned from my sin has taught me how to read what's right how to keep from loving the wrong man twice how to keep from making the same mistake again
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment. With banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more, more information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. They are the generous sponsors of our monthly Story Slam, taking place the second Thursday every month in their Corn Crib Lounge. Storytellers join us to tell their stories on a theme, and our June topic was The Liar's Bench, where we threw out most of the rules and asked our tellers to come in with tall tales and outrageous lies. In our final segment, we'll listen to the winner of that evening's slam, David Denman, with his story of grandparents and explosives. Dave Seastrom is in full retreat, and we'll close the show with J.C. Clement's tune, 24 Hours. Well, you know, we all have someone special in our life, someone that we remember, whether we're from America or from Germany or Linton. And, and the, the thing about them is somebody could say a word, you could smell something, you could be stuck in a rainstorm, something would spark your memory, and they are instantly there with you. For me, it was my grandfather. And, my grandfather's smile could lighten up a dark day. I mean, when I think of my grandfather and his smile, I can almost see him. Big guy, six foot four, bib overalls, always a hat, a cuff shirt, depending on the day my grandma did her wash, white, gray, or blue, and always a farmer. Well. Why is my grandpa special to me? When I was a kid, I was uh, little Bobby. I was a rascal. I got kicked out of the Catholic school. And then I didn't want to do things with my family. So I, I was so cantankerous that they said, okay, you can go over to your friends and shoot his new BB gun, and we're going to visit. Well. I was visiting, and my grandma and my grandpa came over and picked me up. That's odd. They didn't say much. They just took me home to their farm. I found out that my mom and dad and my two sisters were killed in a car wreck. So I lived with my grandma and grandpa. And every morning we had breakfast. And every morning, grandpa would say, thank you, mom. We're going to work. He'd get up and take me with him. So I grew up. I worked there on the farm. I loved my grandpa. But I grew up, you know, and I wanted to go. So I left. Man, did I leave. I went east. I went to the big city. I spent all my money. I did all kinds of things that I shouldn't do. And then I realized, you know what? It's a lot better back there. Like the prodigal son, I just woke up one night and I said, damn, 
I gotta go see my grandpa. His smile could just make everything right. So, even though you haven't seen his smile, I hope you'll get it, the feel of it, by the end of this story. I drove all night, just crashed through. You've taken long drives like that, you know what it's like. Alaska to Indiana. But when I got there, I wanted to straighten up a little bit. I cleaned up, you know, went to a restroom, threw water on my face. And I'm driving over to where the farm is. When I went down the lane, everything's familiar. Oh boy, I'm almost there. And what's this? There's all these cars parked in the fields, probably 15, 16 cars and a crowd of people. So, you know, I. I hadn't been there for a long time, so I pulled in and moseyed around and listened. I soon got the gist of it. There was groups of people. This group wanted to blow it up, start over. I went over to this group. No, 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 no. We're just going to move it and build a new one. What the heck are they talking about? And another one said, no, it's, it's quaint. Let's clean it and reuse it. Well, to blow it up and to build it again, they won. So we're all together now like a bunch of giddy kids. The guy ran up and threw a charge into the old outhouse and ran back, jumped behind the wall, and everybody's, it's going to blow up. It's going to go into the sky. And just about as soon as he jumped over the wall, you hear, I knew that sound. It was the back door of the house. I looked up, and here comes Grandpa out of the house. He's hauling butt for the outhouse, taking down the straps of his bib overalls, and everybody's shouting at him, no, no. And he can't hear. He don't have his hearing aids in. He's going to the outhouse. Right about the time he stepped in, and the door went, it the door went one way, the roof flew off the top, the walls went sideways, and here's Grandpa flipping through the air. And he lands out in the field in a haymow. And everybody runs over. And of course, you know, what do you do? They crowd around him. And too close, oh God, he's dead, he's dead. He wasn't bleeding, but he wasn't moving. And all of a sudden, he lets out a sigh, and his eyes blinked, and he smiled and said, Hoo-wee, I'm glad I didn't let that one go in the house. As a Brown County guy, I never saw myself as someone who would go on a retreat. Why would I? After all, I already live in a place where people come to attend retreats at one of the several summer camps or convention centers. It's easy to understand the attraction to our beautiful forested county and the tranquility this offers. So in a way, those of us who live here full-time are already experiencing the benefits of a retreat without having to leave home. Imagine my surprise when I found out after I joined the board of directors of a forest preservation group that we have an annual retreat that all board members are encouraged to attend. And even though I'm stuck in my ways and used to my routine, I agreed to go on this retreat. This was a first for me. 
I've heard of religious and business retreats, but to my knowledge, organic hippie goat farmers and backwoods semi-recluse folks don't go in for such pleasures, and I wasn't sure how it would go. My ancient paper map was predictably outdated, and just as I pulled into the city of Terre Haute, my cell phone lost connection. After touring some of the neighborhoods, hopelessly lost, I went old school and pulled into a gas station to ask for directions. I met a friendly gal who had so much eye makeup on, I wondered how she could see, and she told me a simple way to get there. Thanks to her, I was only about a half hour late when I arrived. The retreat was held on the beautiful campus of St. Mary of the Woods in West Terre Haute. I've never been to Terre Haute or to St. Mary's before, so just by showing up, I was having all kinds of new experiences. Others in our group were having the same GPS issues, and it turned out, by being a little bit late, I was actually on time. We met on the third floor of the library, and 13 of us took our seats as we listened to our presenter deliver a two-hour talk about conscious communication. A couple of times during her talk, she had us form small groups to discuss some of the points she was trying to make. It became clear in our group discussions that none of us understood that she was trying to teach us how to communicate with each other. We thought we were learning better communication skills so we'd be more effective when speaking with those who oppose our views. Our lack of understanding was humorous because we're all members of the same tribe and we already have good communication skills. When we finished our unconscious conscious communication experience, we enjoyed a simple lunch and returned to the meeting room for another four-hour presentation. This one was about effective fundraising for non-for-profit organizations. The presenter was clearly brilliant, and he brought a host of scientific data to enlighten us on the ins and outs of trying to raise money. Hours and hours in a chair is tough on anybody, especially all us older folks with questionable backs. Fortunately, we were given 10-minute breaks throughout the day, and most of us survived with only minor complaint. We met at a local restaurant and shared a decent meal while we enjoyed excellent conversation. On our way back to St. Mary's, one of our members, who went to school at Indiana State University, gave us a quick tour of some of the classic old neighborhoods, and we viewed many wonderful older homes. When we returned to the campus, another member gave us a short walking tour. It was wonderful to stretch our legs in the hot, muggy air while taking in some of the sights. We had the guest house all to ourselves, and we gathered in a lounge to enjoy some adult beverages as we continued our conversation. Sleeping was a bit of a challenge. The AC was loud and so powerful I was slowly freezing to death, and there was a bright light streaming in from the parking lot that I could only dampen by shutting the louvered shade and the mattress felt like compressed cardboard. In spite of it all, I awoke early the next morning, refreshed and ready to go. After a light breakfast, we met for another three and a half hours to review our strategic plan. When our meeting was over, I asked for directions, and in short order, I found myself lost again. Eventually, I found my way to Highway 46 and enjoyed a two-hour trip driving home through a beautiful stretch of west-central southern Indiana. Honestly, part of me dreaded the thought of going on a retreat. I had visions of all of us sitting in a circle, wearing our jammies, singing kumbaya and roasting marshmallows. I'm pleased to say it wasn't like that at all, and much to my surprise, I actually had a good time. 
But for me, the best part of the experience was retreating to my family and home back in the hills and hollers of Brown County, where I belong. This is Dave Seastrom. I'll see you next time. This is Easy Hill.
you, darling, for 24 hours every day. Thanks for tuning in to episode 89 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. And be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, that the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour, coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.